The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to episode number 22 of Talking Mopars. Today, we're talking Project Car of the Week, high-performance parts, and we're actually going to close out this show with probably the longest listener story I've ever been sent. And the cool thing about this one is it was sent in a very creative way, something that we've never heard before. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to share it. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I'm your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter. And this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Well, hello, my fellow Mopar addicted friends. How's it going? Welcome back. I'm glad you could be joining me here on another episode of Talking Mopars. Today's going to be kind of a laid back episode. We're just going to have some fun. I did want to give a quick update on the 71 Charger that I've been contemplating on buying, and I really want it. You know, I've got projects. I've got Mopar projects right now, but yet I still want to add another one. What is that? What's the deal with that? Do you do the same thing? Do you have Mopar projects and you just can't stop looking, can't stop buying? I really do think it's a sickness, <laughs> and I'm, just, I'm being serious. You know, my wife says that I'm not satisfied with what I have, and it, I don't really think it's that. I love what I have. I've been wanting to do a YouTube channel for a while now. I just haven't figured out how I'm going to go about it, but I think the best way to do it would be to start the channel with a fresh project. So that's kind of the plan. You know, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants, so we'll see what happens, folks. But for right now, I'm all in on the podcast, so don't worry. Even if I did start a YouTube channel, the podcast is the priority. So that's the update on the Charger. Now, let's get this show on the road. This week's Project Car of the Week was a 1970 Dodge Challenger RT that was posted on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page on Sunday, April 5th at 12 p.m. Now, I'm not going to read the entire ad because this car is actually posted on Facebook and it has a plethora of pictures and a ton of information. So I'm going to read part of the ad, and then I'm going to point you in the direction to go look at this car. It's really cool. I think it's worth saving. So here is the Craigslist ad. 1970 Dodge Challenger RT 440 Auto Numbers Match with a Sheet, $23,500. The car's title status is listed as clean. The VIN number is JS23U0B139941. And here's the rest of the ad. For sale, 70 Challenger RT 440 auto numbers matching with a build sheet. 123 photos on my shop's Facebook page. Paul's Sweet 426 Restorations. This car was brought from Texas to Iowa in the 90s. It was all original paint, etc., and all numbers matching with a nice broadcast sheet and original fender tag. It is super clean. 
Right after buying it in the 90s, it popped out of park in his steep driveway, rolled across the street, and into a concrete ditch, bending the left front frame rail. Properly replaced now. The record dented the passenger rear quarter panel, pulling it from the ditch. There are a few light hail dents on the roof, and I'd replace the trunk lid. Floor pans and frame rails are near perfect. It will need a trunk center from rail to rail only. The owner removed the bent fenders and hood, then rolled it into his garage until his passing about five to six years ago. A friend of mine bought it from the widow about five years ago and acquired the needed rust-free front end. His wife got pregnant with triplets shortly afterward, and the car sat longer. I bought it a couple months ago, brought it to my shop, sat the body on my 8-point jig. We properly installed the new front clip and new cow while retaining the body numbers. All this work is documented with photos, and the old front nose is still here with original paint to further document the proper repair. The driver's door retains the original door VIN decal, and the car has all original paint except for the nose. It has all numbers matching engine, transmission, alternator, starter, carb, distributor, exhaust manifolds, etc., 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 with a nice original fender tag and build sheet. The engine is completely properly rebuilt by Bayer Racing Engines in Gretna, Nebraska. The transmission is fresh also. About the only thing I do not have is the air cleaner. Included is the parts needed to convert it to a floor shift and council, if you wish, plus a tan 70 council. We would be glad to help with any or all of the restoration or simply sell it as is for $24,500. I'd consider Mopar slash gas slash tire slash oil signage, a clean open car trailer, or realistically priced Mopars towards the Challenger. PM me for contact info. Thanks. Paul. Now, right before the end of the ad, he actually lists all the options on the car. And I left that out simply because one of the pictures, or on several of the pictures, he actually has a decoded build sheet from ebodies.org. Now, ebodies.org, which is actually e-bodies.org, is probably the best resource for anything ebody. It's a forum online. If you go to the website, you can find all sorts of cool stuff like buying your first e-body, build sheet and fender tag decoders, and restoration tips and tricks. It's a great resource, probably the best resource on planet Earth for anything e-bodies. So if you're into e-bodies, go check that page out. If you haven't already, it's a great resource, like I said. But this ad was actually done really well. There's only one discrepancy that I can see, and that's that at the very end of the ad, he says 24500 when it's actually listed at 23500 So there you go, $1,000 off already. <laughs> I also like that he supplemented his Craigslist ad with a bunch of information and more pictures on his Facebook page, which always helps because you're going to get so much detail on this car that it'll help you with your buying decision. Now, if you've ever seen the build sheet or broadcast sheet decoder from ebodies.org, you'll notice that, and oh, I should say this, they only have the build sheet decoder available for 1970 model challengers only, but that's okay. Um, the build sheet vehicle report is actually really detailed, and it'll tell you, if you have the build sheet for your car, it'll tell you everything that you need to know. So this one has the full meal deal for information as far as the build sheet goes, and he's got the complete original fender tag. So you got some documentation, which is always a great thing to have. And I for $23,500, I think this is a really cool car, and I think it deserves to be saved. As far as pricing goes, I think he's in the right ballpark. You know me. I'd always try to get it lower, and you should too. So hopefully there's a little bit of room to work on the price, but I, you know, I think it's priced right. We're talking about a 70 Challenger RT that's well-documented and is numbers matching. So that has to count for something. I know a lot of people will say, oh, you can get a... You know, fully restored one for twice that or whatever. Well, if you're looking for a project car and you're looking for something cool and of significance, this may be the one for you. 
Whatever the case may be, it is definitely a cool car and definitely deserves to be restored. So if you want to see more information about this car, the seller did share his Facebook business page. So if you just cruise on over to Facebook and you search for Sweet 426 Restorations, which is S-U-I-T-E 426 and then Restorations, you'll find his page. And if you look through it, you'll see the pictures for this Challenger. It has a ton of pictures. I love the detailed photos. So very detailed ad, which, you know, I can appreciate seeing a lot of different ads. You see all the horrible ones, and it's nice and refreshing to come across a very well put together ad. So run on over to Sweet 426 Restorations and take a look at more pictures of the car. And if you're looking for a quick link, you can find it in the show notes of this podcast. That's it for Project Car of the Week. Go check out the 1970 Dodge Challenger RT440 numbers matching car for $23,500. That was Project Car of the Week. This is High Performance Parts, the segment of the show where we highlight a Mopar from TV or movie history, and this week's High Performance Part belongs to the 1971 Hemi Cuda from the movie Gone in 60 Seconds. Not the original, we're talking about the remake here with Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie. This movie is about a retired car thief named Memphis Reigns who gets pulled back into the criminal underworld to help save the life of his brother by stealing 50 cars for a crime boss who will be shipping the cars overseas. One of them being a 1971 Hemi Cuda with a pistol grip four-speed, a shaker hood, painted in Moulin Rouge. Very cool car. And in the movie, all of the vehicles that need to be stolen, all 50 of them, all have code names, and the code names are female names. And the 71 Hemi Cuda was known as Shannon. My research really couldn't find any pertinent information about the car, whether it's a clone or the real deal. So if you guys know any information out there about the 71 Hemi Cuda from Gone in 60 Seconds, let me know. I'm curious to see if it's actually a real Hemi Cuda in Moulin Rouge or if it's a tribute car. That would be some good information to find out, but I couldn't really dig up any information, surprisingly. I do know that it has been made into some die-cast cars, so, you know, it's a pretty well-known car from the movie. Uh, you know, it's like, Eleanor is like the star of the show, but, you know, that 71 Hemi Cuda really, you know, it made an impact on a lot of us, especially the scene. If you remember the scene, Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie were getting hot and heavy in the 71 Cuda right before they were going to steal it. and you know, the pistol grip got in the way. I wonder how often that's happened <laughs> in real life. But that's the car. That's high-performance parts for this week. The 1971 Hemi Cuda from the Gone in 60 Seconds remake. All right, folks, we're going to close today's show with listener stories. We have one voicemail and one interesting listener story that was actually recorded by a listener with his own microphone instead of a call-in. He wanted a little bit better sound quality. You've heard his story about the 68 dart for $50 that slipped through his fingers. And now he's going to tell us another story. But he wasn't satisfied with the way he sounded on the call, so he decided to use his own microphone and record the story. It's a long one, folks, but it's a fun one. So Let's get into the voicemail first, and then we'll close out the show with Jerry's pre-recorded story. This should be a fun one, folks. Here we go. Our first story is from a returning contributor to listener stories. That's my friend, Hemi Bill. 
So let's let Hemi Bill have the spotlight for a minute and share the story of how he got hooked onto Mopars. Hey, good morning, Chris. This is Hemi Bill calling. wanted to relate to you the uh, story of the car that got me hooked on Mopars. Now, a little backstory about this is uh, in 1972, my parents bought a brand new Volkswagen van. Oh, boy. No fun there, but uh, four-cylinder, four-speed. I actually learned to drive a stick shift in that vehicle when I was about 11 years old. Luckily, we had a three-acre backyard and plenty of room to putz around in there. Anyways, fast forward a few years, and I'm now like 15, maybe 16 years old, and I had a learner's permit. And one of my older sisters was dating a guy who had a blue 70 Roadrunner, 383 four-speed car. So one day, my younger sister said she wanted to get some sodas at the store. So my older sister's boyfriend tossed me the keys to the Roadrunner and said, hey, take that up to 7-Eleven. So me and my younger sister get in the car, and I kind of limp it up the side streets through the apartments, and we got to the 7-Eleven. I'm sitting in the car just letting it idle while my younger sister goes inside and buys a couple big gulps. Meanwhile, there's two guys leaning against the 396 Chevelle and eyeballing me, wondering, how did this little kid get a, a hot-looking car? And, and truthfully, uh, I was little. I was probably 135 pounds soaking wet at the time. So anyways, my sister comes out. She's got the two sodas. She sits down. I back the car up, turn around, and I go out, and I'm get, trying to get back onto the street. Uh, there's traffic coming down from my left. There's a stoplight to the right. And my little spindly legs are holding down this Zoom 3,600-pound clutch with all its force. Meanwhile, here comes a break in traffic. So I let the clutch out a little bit, but my left leg gave out completely, and the clutch comes pounding up. The engine RPMs go down, and instinctively I gave it some gas. Well, unfortunately, I gave it too much gas, because now I'm burning the tires coming out of the 7-Eleven sideways up the street, heading towards a forest green Pinto. I jerked the car over to the right-hand lane, slammed second gear, and I honestly don't know if the motor mount was broken before uh, I slammed second gear, but it was definitely broken after I slammed second gear, because this long pistol grip shifter went flying to the right. Since my hand was still holding onto the shifter, I slam shifted over and actually punched my sister in the shoulder. Soda pop was flying around the inside of the car. We go screaming up the street, make a hard left, head back to the apartment. We pull back into the parking space where my older sister's boyfriend was still standing there smoking a cigarette. We get out. I toss him the keys back. He's like, well, how was it? And I said, it was frightening. Anyways, that's the story of the car that got me hooked because I knew I had to have a Mopar of my own after that. Anyways, Hemi Bill out. Thanks, Hemi Bill, for sending in another story. I love it when people tell stories about how they got into Mopars. They're always fun, and this one was no different. Bill, what a treat. <laughs> that must have been a fun ride. And although you were scared then, I bet looking back now, you're like, wow, that was pretty cool. I do agree that the guys at 7-Eleven were probably like, what in the hell is this kid doing in this Roadrunner? But, you know, you showed him what was up and possibly even broke a motor mount. But that was a fun story, Bill. Thank you very much for sending it in. We have treats today, folks. I love it when people come back and submit another story. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the thing about Mopar people is that 
we have so many stories. It's like, well, which one do you want to hear? You know what I mean? So if you have multiple stories and you've submitted one before to this show, feel free to keep sending them in and I'll keep playing them. All right. So our next listener story is from Jerry, who sent in a story last week about the 68 dart that slipped through his fingers. And like I said, Jerry actually wasn't satisfied with how his phone call sounded on the podcast. So he decided to record his story the way I record this podcast with a microphone. Here is Jerry's next story. Hi, Chris. This is Jerry from Pennsylvania. First, I love Talking Mopar's podcast, and I'm so glad I found it. I usually listen at work, and it's nice to work while listening to someone talk Mopar's. It's sort of like having your friends sit next to you and tell you car stories all day long. I've loved Mopars because of my dad, who actually was not a Mopar fanatic, but the one car we had when I was little that left an impression on me was our 1968 Dodge Dart. It was light gold with a black vinyl top and had that 270 denomination on the trim that ran down the side. It also had the indestructible slant six and ran forever. It was eventually handed down to my brother who drove it to high school and drove us around, and its life ended at some point, though I'm fuzzy on exactly what happened to it. I think maybe it just got old and tired. I do know that when junkyards were still a common thing in each town, we would visit the junkyard quite a lot to get parts, and a few years later, I did see our old dart there, picked clean. If I only knew back then what it knew now, I would have tried to rescue it, but I was only 13 or 14, so to us, it was just our old car. I then got a Dodge Dart from my dad's friend while in high school. It was a medium gold poly, I think the color's called, but to me it looked copper. And it had a copper interior with vinyl bench seats with an automatic on the column. It was a base model with a slant six again, and I had many a great time with that car until it was rear-ended and the frame was bent, so that was kind of it for that car. So with the about $800 I got from the insurance company, I bought a 71 Plymouth Duster. And that was in autumn bronze metallic, which was kind of that metallic-y brown. It had a black interior, a 318, and cloth bench seat with an automatic on the column. So I removed the bench and got two bucket seats from the aforementioned junkyard, bolted them in, got some new carpet, which I ordered from good old J.C. Whitney catalog. I added a set of Kregers, some air shocks to raise the sagging rear end, and a fiberglass hood scoop again from J.C. Whitney. That was the great thing about those cars back in the day. You could buy a relatively quiet-looking duster from some guy who was just getting rid of it, and then add some cool wheels, jack it up a bit, and bammo, instant muscle car. So, after a few years, the duster was getting tired and needing constant repairs, so off it went. And again, back then, they were just old cars. And we were in the midst of the 80s malaise, and gas and insurance was getting really expensive, especially regarding anything with a V8. And if you were under 25 and had a V8 muscle car, Boy, you were paying some high insurance back then. Well, I was no Rockefeller at this point, and I did have the itch to get a newer car. So I was kind of intrigued by the 2.2 liter chargers coming out by Dodge, and the magazine ads were showing these as pretty fast, as they were kind of cool back in the day. And the one ad showed the red 2.2 stripe charger racing an 82 Trans Am and a Z28. And I remember the headline reading, Dodge Charger 2.2, 50,000 mile protection and performance that blows the doors off Trans Am and Z28. So, trying to stay loyal to my Dodge roots, I did get a used 82 Charger 2.2, red with all the striping, fake hood scoop, louvers, the whole deal. Actually, it was a decent car, but it wasn't blowing the doors off anybody. But it got me through several years of having some fun driving and great gas mileage, and I could beat the occasional malaise 80 Camaro on the street, but that was about it. But with the big hatch, the folding seats, it was a pretty good car for a while. 
but its day eventually ended. See, that's when I was in a quandary that I kind of blamed Dodge for. I was still a young guy, maybe 25, 26, and I wanted a sporty car. But back then, there was no in-between like there is now. There was no sports sedans like today. Today, a young guy can buy a pretty inexpensive four-door 2009 Dodge Charger and have great fun with that, instead of buying a true sports coupe. Plenty of options today. But back in the day, if you wanted a four-doors, maybe you could buy a Chevy Citation X as your sports sedan, which was a crummy Chevy Citation with an X decal on the door. But there was no real middle ground back then. But I digress. So I left the Dodge Fold. To me, Dodge had nothing newer coming out that wasn't powered by a four-banger, and I honestly had my fill of the 2.2 liter. And I needed a newer car, not a 60s, 70s muscle car. So I left Dodge and went to Chevy and Pontiac buying an 82Z28, then I bought a later 87 Trans Am GTA. I didn't really return to Dodge until I was married and bought Dodge's brand new 93 Intrepid ES, which was a decent car as well. It had that 3.5 liter 214 horsepower V6 and was rated a quarter mile with just under 16 seconds. My prior Trans Am with a 350 V8 put out 225 horsepower at the time, so this was a good compromise. Um, the Intrepid was gold as well with the matching gold sport wheels. I seem to have a thing for gold cars. So that car came and went along with several others. So enough of this is your life. So fast forward to 2007. My son was 15 and we had seen at a local supermarket near us an orange 1970 Dodge Charger 500 sitting in the parking lot several times. We had seen it once or twice there before and once on the road driving. It was somewhat rusty but otherwise seemed in pretty decent condition. We only ever saw it that few times and we got super excited whenever we did. Like everyone else I'm sure who listens to Talking Mopars, I always wanted to get a muscle car to work on, but back then, finances never seemed to work out. With two kids, school, clothes, sports, and eventually building an in-law suite for my mother-in-law to move in, all of that sucked up any of my fun money. But it was nice to dream. So little did I know, on the last day we would ever see the Charger in the wild, back in 2007, we saw it parked at the supermarket again. And we saw two older white-haired ladies near the car. One was sitting on a bench looking a little frail and wearing those big cataract-style sunglasses. And the other one seemed to be returning from the car. My son and I approached them and greeted them and asked the younger of the two if that was her car. And she said, no, this was her mother's car sitting next to her with the big sunglasses, who I suppose was in her mid to late 70s, and she looked every year of it. So I was initially surprised that this bright orange charger was her car but regrouped myself, eager to at least discuss the car a little bit. It was a bit of an awkward conversation. I said that my son and I would be interested in the Charger if they ever sold it, as I was always looking to find a father-son project car. Not entirely true financially, but what the heck. So I left my name and number and a little note and gave it to them. I had zero hopes that they would keep it, as the conversation seemed to be one-sided with me doing all the talking and getting a lot of blank stares. Also, we never saw the Charger again at the supermarket after that. That was the last day we ever saw it, and eventually, I kind of forgot about it. So 10 years passed by. Flash forward to 2017 October. My kids were done college pretty much, and I'd gotten some extra money to me, and I thought I could maybe find a Mopar to get a little fun weekend project car. Not a total wreck, but a car that needed a little TLC would be fine. I knew I could not afford a B-Body, no Chargers and Cudas, which is what I really wanted, but I knew from going to Carlisle Mopar shows and general knowledge that those were priced way out of my budget. So, my first car, as I said before, way back as a teen, was my 1968 Dodge Dart. Like you, Chris, I've always loved darts, and I thought an A-Body in good condition would be what I could afford. I found an ad online for a 1968 Dart GT with a 273 V8 about two hours away. 
The fam and I went on a road trip to see it, stopping at some antique stores and generally making a day out of it. So we finally saw the dart. Guess what color it was? Medium gold. What is it with me and these gold cars? It had a black vinyl roof, bucket seats, and an automatic console on the floor. It's really nice. Took it for a ride, and while no barn burner, it was fine. The seller wanted $18,000 for it. I told him I'd think about it and left, figuring I'd probably offer a bit less if I took it. We also had an argument about the color on the way home, as my wife and future daughter-in-law swore it was pea green, where it was clearly gold. So that went on for quite a while. My wife was also not on board with this car. She didn't like it at all. Not a fan of Dodge Darts. She called them old man's cars. So that was going to be an issue moving forward with my car selection as that was primarily focused on darts and dusters, mainly for budgetary reasons. So later the next day, I was home at my desk working and I was looking up more cars and thinking about that dart and our house phone rang. I heard the machine pick it up as we still have our landline. Most people don't, as we all have cell phones, of course, but for some reason, we still have the landline. And the only people who call the landline are CVS drugstores and the occasional spammer, but we still have it. Well, I heard the machine pick up and I hear the recording come on and I hear a female voice that I didn't recognize leaving a message. I assumed it was for my wife, so I was pretty much ignoring it until I heard the words, you left a note about my mother's charger and I was calling to... I leapt out of my chair and grabbed the phone, and to my surprise, it was the daughter of the old woman from the supermarket parking lot I had spoken to 10 years ago. 10 years ago! This was the old woman with the cataract sunglasses daughter, Nancy. Her mother, who was the original owner of the Charger, had recently died in her late 80s, and they were going through her estate and her house, etc., and the Charger was one of the last things to go. Though these people lived in the same town as me, I hadn't physically seen this Charger for 10 years. Because I discovered upon talking to Nancy, the Charger had been put away in their garage a decade ago as it really started to need too much work to be inspected and roadworthy. So there it sat. And her mother had kept 16 notes from 16 different people over the years who had expressed interest in the Charger. But apparently, when they tried to contact them, none of those phone numbers were viable anymore, except mine. Because I guess everybody else got rid of their landlines or moved, and that was the number I'd put back down in 2007 our landline. So we decided to meet up to see the charger. I brought my wife, my daughter, and my son with me. You see, I knew the original owner's daughter who was selling the charger was an older woman who lived alone. And I felt that it would look better if a family came to see the car and not just my six foot two self and my six foot five son. I didn't want to intimidate her or make her feel uncomfortable with us being there. So here's my tip for you would be car buyers. If you're gonna see a car being sold by a woman or a family, Bring your family with you if you can. You immediately diffuse a possibly intimidating situation. Because when we got there, my wife immediately struck up a conversation and friendship with the two sisters, and that probably would not have happened in the same fashion if it was just myself and my son there alone. So we all met the two sisters, Karen and Nancy, who said that they themselves were handling their mother's affairs and selling the charger. Not really knowing what else to do, they decided to reach out to local people instead of posting it on Craigslist because they didn't want to have a bunch of strangers show up to their house and try to intimidate them or strong arm them on the car. They didn't really know how to sell a car. Remember, this was just two single women a bit older and trying to sell a car they really knew nothing about. They were afraid to have a bunch of strangers showing up at their house, so they figured they would reach out to the local people who had left their names and numbers. And luckily, that was us. So we quickly struck up a great rapport and a real friendship with the two sisters. They told us this was their first new car their family ever bought. Their father had told their mother back in 1970 when they got the car that he was picking the car, but the mother could pick whatever color she wanted. 
So she picked the Dodge High Impact Color Go Man Go Orange. Of course, 1970 was the first year that Dodge produced these super bright colors. So their mother must have been around 36 or 38 when she bought this. So a mother with two young girls and she buys a bright orange Dodge Charger and not a station wagon. So this woman must have been really something. They also told us that their mother drove them everywhere in that car, to school, to the store, and eventually the two of them drove it themselves to high school. They said when they drove it to high school, though, all the boys looked at the car, not just not at them. So I opened this garage and looked at the car. After the initial giddiness wore off, I could see this car really needed a lot of work. While at first glance, the body looked pretty good, but I could see the rear was entirely rusted at the lower quarter and was creeping up on the inside of these quarters. These rear quarter panels had a lot of cancer on them. The frame rails were rusted through. I then saw the trunk floor and you could see the garage floor right through it. The trunk extenders were rotted along with the inner wheel housings and I knew that they and the trunk would have to be totally replaced. The front quarters were also rusted and dented quite a bit. I knew there was easily about $5,000 worth of man hours and body work and probably a hefty amount in parts as well. And this was just the stuff that I could see. But it was a 1970 Charger, a car I never thought I could afford. As you recall, the day before I was looking at the infamous green gold Dodge Dart. The VIN was XP29 and it was a 1970 Charger 500 in Go Mango Orange. It's an automatic console on the floor, a 318 V8 with a one owner car. The original vinyl roof was in excellent condition. Aside from the usual worn carpet and the worn headliner and two kind of tired interior front door panels, the rest of the interior was in fantastic condition. The dash had no cracks. It looked great. The 1970 Charger, of course, is different from the 69 Charger 500. The 69 has the flat rear window and the flush grille for the racing aerodynamics. But by the time the 70 Charger 500 came out, Dodge had already produced the famed Wing Daytona. So in 1970, the 500 denomination was just a trim level package noted by the XP in the VIN for premium. So that meant that the Charger 500 was an upgrade between the base and the RT. The 500 came with upgraded interior, power steering, power brakes, with disc brakes up front and drum rears. It had AM-FM with a cool fader knob for the front and back speakers, air conditioning, and all the upgrades like center floor mounted console, driver's side adjustable mirror, and all sorts of things like that. And also, the 70 has the huge wraparound chrome front grille that was absolutely perfect with no dings and no dents. How in 50 years this thing was original with no dings is a miracle. I was somewhat hesitant to buy this car because I knew this needed a lot of work. But my wife and my son talked me back into it and we decided to try and make a deal. It was easy to see how much the car meant to the two sisters and the memories that it had. They really wanted the car to go to someone who would appreciate it and drive it and love it like they and their mother did. So though I knew it needed a lot of work, the inside was really great. So we bought the car for $16,000 with the promise that we were not going to flip it and we weren't going to sell it. We weren't going to do anything to it but restore it to a look that it would have had in the 70s. I still feel like we got off pretty good with that price because I have seen Chris post some absolute wrecks on the Mopar Hunter that are commanding the same amount. And I have seen disasters myself that are almost skeletal frames at Carlisle at the Mopar shows that people want $20,000 for. So it took us two years to partially restore it. This was a frame on restoration, I would call it. As I mentioned before, the entire rear was replaced from the front doors back. Both rear quarters needed to be reskinned. They were cut off, new skins bought from AMD, then welded back on. 
the entire trunk floor was replaced with all the miscellaneous brackets and extenders. And then once you got in there, of course, more was discovered. Both sides of the inner and outer wheel housings were replaced. The rear frame rails were cut and replaced. The gas tank was replaced and all the brackets for that. The rear sail panel and the lower valance and the rear bumper was replaced. My garage was literally bursting with enormous boxes from Classic Industries and Auto Metal Direct boxes. After all the parts were bolted on and the body roughed, then on to the mechanicals. The entire brake system was replaced, completely new front discs and rotors were replaced and rebuilt, and the rear drums were completely rebuilt. The rear axle needed sealing as it was leaking. We needed to replace the entire brake line system as the old ones were pretty much completely rusted away. Miscellaneous other items like the starter, the water pump, completely new distributor, plugs, wires, etc. And we had to rebuild the carburetor twice because the first time it just didn't work out. Plus all the other random things that pop up. Then it was onward to my friend's son-in-law who did the bodywork, blocking, sanding, and eventually painting it PPG Go Mango Orange. As we put the interior back together with new carpet and headliner, we also took the seats, the console, and the plastic parts out and refreshed them as well. It's far from Concours perfect, but it looks really good, and it's meant to be a driver, not a show car. The 318 engine is stock too, and the odometer reads 55,000, but it could be 155,000, I have no idea. I also replaced two freeze plugs on the engine. I think one is still leaking a bit, along with a slight oil leak too. The 318 runs well, but it's pretty tired. I'm eventually going to rebuild it completely, but I need to take a financial break from this restore at this point. I know most people would want to tear out the 318 and throw a 440 into it or something, but I'm not swapping in another engine. I'm not building a racing car. I'm not racing it. I'm just driving it around. I also kind of feel that this engine survived 50 years, and I'm not going to tear it out. And... When we brought the car, we also promised the sisters that once it was done, we'd bring the charger back to them so they could see it and they could take a ride in their mother's car, which was restored to its prior glory. So we did. We got it done in two years, brought it back to them. We all took them out for a ride in it. It was awesome. The car is now a permanent part of our family and we enjoy it on the weekends and drives and we can finally take it to car shows this summer. I want to go to the Mopar show in Carlisle, PA, as it's celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 1970 Charger. It should be quite the turnout. It's supposed to be the biggest gathering of 1970 Chargers in one place since they were assembled in 1970. It's also a pretty cool car to have around this area because nobody else has a 1970 Charger around here, especially an orange one. Also, upon tearing apart the Charger's interior, we did find two intact build sheets in really great condition. I made photocopies of them uh, and I have them stored in a plastic sleeve in our binder. But the most amazing thing that we found as we stripped the interior was a handwritten note that was left by one of the assemblers. It was written in pencil on the cardboard insert that separates the trunk behind the rear seats. The note was a little capsule of that night by this worker written to his two daughters. And it said, Today is the 12th of December, 1969. The night is going by pretty good. I want to get home to see my girls. Barbie, I love you. Bonnie, I love you. So this was a note from the actual worker who had assembled that part of the car. It was not only an awesome thing to find, but it also verified a very close build date. My build sheet had the car scheduled for December 15th, 1969 to be built, so this note confirms that pretty closely, because his note was dated the 12th of December. So that was absolutely thrilling to find out, and a great thing to find. I often think of trying to track down this worker's name, but I really have no idea where I'd start. So that's my story. My charger does have an Instagram page if you want to check it out. It's 70 underscore Go Man Go. 
and I'd love some new followers. And if you want to see some pictures documenting our journey, take a look. That's our story. I got the charger that I never thought I would, all because of a random note I left a decade ago, hanging onto a landline and a little luck. Thanks for listening, everybody. Wow, and after the cost of this restoration, to me, maybe Mopar really does mean mighty on parts and repairs. Boy. But no, we all know it means Mopar or no car. Thanks again, everyone. No, Jerry, thank you for sharing that epic story. What a fun one. Like I said on the last episode of the show, you want to be persistent. And sometimes persistence pays off. And in this case for Jerry, you know, all he had to do was leave his name and number. And eventually, thankfully, Everybody else, their landlines were disconnected and Jerry kept his on. And I think that if it wasn't for that, obviously Jerry wouldn't have that charger. So good job, Jerry. What a what a fun story. I'll tell you what, if I was in Jerry's shoes and I heard that phone ring and I started to hear that voicemail, I probably would have ripped that phone right from the wall or the hook and uh, from excitement, you know, because that's the call you've been waiting for. I could only imagine, you know, that's. Gosh, what a fun story. And then I really got the feeling that you are a diehard Mopar guy, Jerry. You know, you may have strayed a little bit and tried some of the other brands out there, but eventually, like everybody else, you're going to make your way back to Mopar and never look back. And, you know, it sounds like you've had a ton of different cars. And you said something that I thought was really funny and that really shows that you're a true car guy, and that's that you had a 93 Dodge Intrepid, and you knew what the quarter mile time was. (laughs) That's true car guy stuff right there. That was funny. But getting back to the Charger, I think it was great to share what you paid for the car and how much work you had to put into it to get it to where it was a comfortable driver. You can find Jerry's pictures of his car on his Instagram page, and there will be a link to that in the show notes. But it's a beautiful car. And Is it a fun driver that you can take anywhere you want and have a great time with the family or even on a cruise by yourself just to unwind? Yes. And that's what I love most about the story. It's the everyman's charger. Far too often you hear guys saying, oh, I'll never have a charger. I'm too broke for that. This isn't a rich man's hobby like a lot of people want you to think. Now, if you have champagne dreams but a PBR bank account, then that's a different story. But, you know, that's what, like me? I got a PBR bank account, folks. That's why I have a 69 Dart that is not finished yet and an old truck. <laughs> you know, that's that's how I do it. You know, Jerry, he found himself a great car. And to me, it sounds like he's had a lot of fun with it. And how about the handwritten note found in the car from one of the assembly line workers? How cool is that? If anybody out there has ever found anything like that or heard of another story like that, please let me know. That's amazing. That was a really fun, that was probably my favorite part of the story. And also, Jerry gave you guys a golden nugget of a tip for Mopar hunting and trying to score that deal. And that golden nugget was bring your family with you. You know, that was a good move on Jerry's part. And I think that that aided in him getting that car. So very cool. Jerry, that was a great story, man. I really appreciate it. And hey, if you got any more, feel free to send them in. And this goes out to all of you out there listening. Please send in your stories. That's what kind of fun we can have on the show. Now, I intended to read all the email stories that I still have to catch up on, but you get a recording that's, you know, 20 minutes long, and you kind of want to feature it on the show. So that's why 
Jerry's listener story was featured on the show. And of course, you have Hemi Bill, another regular of the show, two regulars today, giving great stories. That's why this show is amazing. It's because of all of us as a community. The Mopar community has so many great stories, and I want this show to be the platform from which you can tell your story. For years to come, people will be able to listen to this show and hear fun Mopar stories. That's the goal. That's what this is all about. No Mopar left behind. That was listener stories. Thank you, Hemi Bill. Thank you, Jerry. And special shout out to another regular contributor, Johnny Mopar. Thanks, guys. I love the regular contributors. I think it's really fun because, like I said a few minutes ago, everybody's got all these stories, and I want to hear them all. So send them in. You can reach me by email, chris at talkingmopars.com, or my preferred method, leave me a voice message and tell me your story that way. You can reach my voicemail at 209-28-MOPAR. That was Listener Stories. That does it for us here on Talking Mopars, episode number 22. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I did. For more information about this show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. Tell all your Mopar-addicted friends about this show, and if you have time, rate and review it. That would always help me out. And once again, remember, for questions, comments, concerns, complaints, and anything else on your mind, you can reach me by email, chris at TalkingMopars.com, or leave me a voice message at 209-28-MOPAR. I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.